Upon entering the property of an opulent house party, a husband and wife who have arrived late joke about the quiet and apparently lifeless entryway as if it were the scene of a potential murder. They locate the party within the expansive garden grounds beyond the house, descending the wide exterior staircase just as the crowd applauds a partially obscured center of attention. The timing is odd, almost as if the people were applauding the entrance of this couple they have no idea has joined them. The husband, an author, notices a hardback book leaning between two iron bars of a balcony and picks it up. It is Herman Brock's eminent novel, The Sleepwalkers, a trilogy of stories offering a critique of moral poverty and its many thematic symptoms, including loneliness, unrest, irrationalism, self-indulgence, and disintegration. Scanning the seemingly frivolous crowd of partygoers, he asks his wife, who here would be reading The Sleepwalkers? When his wife later tells him she has located the reader of this book, he will go. In search of the reader, yes, and self-indulgence, of course. But most importantly, he will go in search of loneliness, in search of unrest, and in search of the irrational and disintegration. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Criterion Cast, where we discuss the important contemporary and classic films of the Criterion Collection. We're recording this on August 9th, 2020. I'm Jordan Esso, and I'll be your host today for episode 209, as we shine the spotlight on Michelangelo Antonioni's 1961 film, La Notte. This is Spine 678, and it is the second film in what has been retrospectively titled Antonioni's Alienation Trilogy, also known as his Trilogy on Modernity and Its Discontents, which also includes La Ventura from 1960, which we covered last month, and La Clisse from 1962. Let's meet our roundtable. First, we have Scott and I down in Los Angeles, who, per usual, has watched a lot of films lately. You posted about seeing Only Angels Have Wings. What did you think? Uh, it's one I've seen many times and put it on as a great Saturday night comfort viewing, and so it was. Yes, I love that film. Second, we have David Blakesley in Wyoming, Michigan, who has just returned from what looked like a rather spectacular road trip to Lake Superior with some like tropical-looking emerald water surrounded by stunning rock formations. How was it, and how did you manage the COVID precautions while on the road? Well, it was a fantastic trip, and the COVID thing, you know, basically we just drove in our car and we walked quickly past any hikers that we met along the trail. <laughs> we did have our masks on. You'll see I have my mask available uh, for rapid deployment in the various photos that I posted. But yeah, it was a fantastic trip, and, you know... Um, not to be smug or presumptuous about it, but there really has not been a lot of COVID-related uh, illness up in the Upper Peninsula. So we felt pretty secure, pretty uh, you know safe traveling up that way. We did take the appropriate precautions. I don't want to you know alarm any of our listeners there, but uh, it's it's a beautiful area. I feel very privileged to have uh, access to. Uh, the Upper Peninsula. Uh, it's it's a few hours drive, but it's not a bad drive at all. It's a it's a it's a nice drive actually, and once you get there, the scenery is is indeed spectacular. So, uh, if it's within your range, I highly recommend it. But it is it's great to get back with you guys. It's been a couple of weeks since I've done any podcasting, and it's nice not to have to host this <laughs> this particular session. But I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. It's great to have you. It's good to hear your voice. And third, we have Arik Dovins in Berkeley, California, who has Marcello Mastroianni as his background wallpaper on Facebook. How are you, Arik? And 
tell us how much more vibrant is Marcello's screen presence than poor old Gabriel Frizzetti? <laughs> yeah, I I love Marcello Mastroianni. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be my my post uh, my background on Twitter too. I changed it. I actually forgot I hadn't changed it on Facebook. I'm on there so little, but uh, uh, yeah, definitely something I uh, aspired. Definitely a look I aspired to. You know, sort of that. It's it's from eight and a half. It's like you know he's a little more white haired at that point than he is in in this particular uh, entry. But yeah, he's just the coolest. Yeah, no less dashing in eight and a half. No, just even more from the being all you know you know silver foxy. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Lenote today, and this is the only film in the Alienation trilogy I think not on the sight and sound list of the top one hundred films of all time. But they may be wrong about that. I think. Um, can I get someone to? volunteer to summarize the narrative of La Note. I can do it. Let's do it. Uh, so yeah, La Note follows one day and night and morning in the life of a, a couple. Uh, and um, the, it begins with their visiting a friend who is terminally ill in the hospital. And uh, the, the wife, Lydia, of the couple flees the hospital room and kind of wanders the streets. And the husband uh, whose name I am now blanking on, which is awful. Giovanni. Giovanni, of course. How could I forget Giovanni? Uh, it has sort of a tryst with someone who's clearly in the hospital for some sort of mental problem. He like gets pulled into her room and whatever, and you get the sense that this is not a super well-functioning couple. And uh, anyway, the film follows as the wife kind of wanders the streets, and they uh, end up eventually they reconnect, and she she sort of says, "Hey, you know, we we stay in all the time." let's go out tonight. And, and he says, Oh, well, I know, I know these people are throwing this party because my book has just come out. Uh, I'm skipping certain moments in the story, but at, at any rate, um, let's go. And then they, they, she says, no, let's, let's not go. Let's go to just by ourselves. But when they go out by themselves, they have no connection. They're not really with each other. So she says, fine, let's just go to the party. And they do. And that's where, as Jordan said in his wonderful opening, uh, Giovanni sees this book and the rest of the film, about half the film follows their time at this party during which uh, both of them are tempted by uh, another uh, with Giovanni falling far further into that pit than his wife. And eventually them, the two of them coming back together at dawn and his wife telling him that she no longer loves him. Great. I think one of the things that would be nice to um, get some first impressions on is do we think this is the disintegration of this couple or do we think something more cyclical is going on here anybody who'd like to jump in and, and address that I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, take that one on because that to me is is the you know the great attraction to this film is uh, this examination of a, of a marriage you know sailing through very choppy and troubled waters uh, maybe I just have lakes on the brain or something like that from my recent trip. But yeah, as as a as a man who's about to celebrate his 36th wedding anniversary later this month, um, you know, I could relate to certain passages in this film, certain tensions that exist between the husband and wife, uh, some fatigue, some um, 
you know, some questioning of what are we doing here? What's this all about? Uh, why are we still together? And, uh, you know, I'm happy to say that I've, I've navigated through those passages, but I, I could certainly relate. And there's a lot of great, you know, troubled marriage <laughs> films within the Criterion Collection. And this is one of the very best. And I think, I think the, the, the whole arc of the story is very ambiguous. Uh, he is professing his love to her at the end. She is saying, no, it's, it's not there, but it's not at all clear as the camera pans away. I know we're jumping right to the very final shot of the film. <laughs> That yep. uh, that this this could continue on for quite some time. I don't think there's anything definitive that happens, and I think that's part just one small aspect of the genius of this film. I think this is an outstanding movie, um, one that I you know completely enjoyed revisiting. I watched it once before my vacation. I've watched it since I've returned, and uh, I think this is every bit as worthy of. Uh, admiration as the uh, you know the, the front and backsides of this trilogy. So yeah, I I'm yeah I, I basically very impressed and and feel like there's a lot of truth that's being spoken here, uh, even though it doesn't draw maybe the kind of firm conclusion that some viewers might desire. But that's kind of just how life is, you know. I think it's so wonderful that you said that because I, I really do agree. I think a lot of the analysis of the film, even from Antonioni, leads one to believe that something sort of um, cathartic or essentially transformative has happened to these two people over the course of this night. We should say the film takes place in uh, a timeline of less than 24 hours. But I'm with you. Um, Maybe it wasn't the way that I saw the film the first time I saw it. This was the first Antonio new film I ever watched um, back in uh, like 2005, not that long ago. But I thought um, at this point in my life that the the, the characters are, are really going through something, maybe cyclical, the word I used before is not quite right, but that something that has more to do with the enduring weariness of their relationship rather than a pivotal turn. Uh, what about you, Scott? Uh, jump in here and, and tell us something about your your impression, either of this or of La Note in general. Um, I liked it more this time. It is not a favorite film of mine, for sure. And I'll admit that a lot of this is like... Uh, I can come up with reasons sort of around the central issue to me, which is that as much as I love Marcello Mastroianni and Jean Moreau, I don't think they're particularly well suited to this type of work. And as we discussed with Lo Ventura, yeah, as we discussed with Lo Ventura, uh, a lot of Antonioni's films by this point, and certainly going forward, are so delicately constructed and so reliant on uh, impression, impressions the actors give and receive, and sort of ways of nonverbal communication that it could just be that I'm not picking up on the wavelength um, and that plenty of others are seeing things in it that I just can't pick up on. But to me, it becomes very evident how lacking the two central performances are when Monica Vitti shows up and she's uh, imbuing so much more and conveying so much more in between the lines that Mastroianni and Jean Moreau to me just are not. And to a certain extent, you can read this as uh, symptomatic or emblematic of their decaying relationship, how they don't have anything to give emotionally. But that, to me, reads as uh, too shallow, um, too uh, 
sort of finger wagging towards the couple, too condemning of them and too thin to uh, support the entire film. Very controversial. Very, very, very controversial. Indeed, Scott. Um, I I really push back against all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. (laughs) I I mean, I think... Monica Vitti is a I struggle with her screen presence. There there's a vanity to her screen presence that sometimes bothers me because it it feels like um all of the subtlety she's asked to carry um sometimes I feel is interrupted by an sort of an outside influence if if you know what I mean. Um it doesn't feel fully invested in the life of the film. She seems like a movie star at times that I feel is inappropriate to the tapestry that Antonioni is weaving. And I think it works okay. Uh it works well uh in La Ventura and here I think she's cast really well. I agree with you that that she really succeeds in this part, but I think it's because she is the you know oppositional force to these other two actors that I just feel like someone like Jean Moreau much more effortlessly carries nuance and the weight of the world while doing very little. I was so thrilled to have her as the leading lady. I think, for example, if you'd had VT in the leading role, this film kind of falls apart for me. What, what do you think, Arik? I I love this movie, so I definitely would also push back on on Scott. Although that's of course you know personal taste or whatever. But to the to the point that is being made, yeah, I I mean I'm a I'm pro- I'm probably a Jean Moreau super fan, and I also love Monica Vitti, and of course we mentioned that I love Marcello Mastroianni. So uh, I, I'm you know probably not the most uh, you know um, uh, objective judge, but I think that um, that it, all of them work really well for this particular story. And I think there is actually a lot, I would say that I think there's a lot being left unsaid. There's just a lot of small moments in the film. I mean, you know, as with basically all of Antonioni, there's a lot of time to have those small moments. And I think of things like, um, I think this is even mentioned in, in one of the supplements, but the Jean Moreau at the, or something I read online, but Jean Moreau at the, at the book party. And she's just looking at the cover of her husband on the book and then kind of, initially is kind of like, Oh, and then she's just kind of gets this cold look and kind of looks away. And I think those, there's a lot of that kind of stuff, probably less from Mastroianni, but I think that he's, his character is sort of a little more bumbling. So it kind of makes, it kind of makes sense to me that he's, he's got a little less, you know, cause he, he seems to be going through some sort of writer's crisis that seems to have left him kind of vapid in, in, a, in a sense. And he's more excited to be around these sort of boring, you know, um, non-readers or whatever you would call them. I saw an, an, an interesting thing uh, about someone arguing that this movie is in some sense an update of Journey to Italy, which you know ties back to our Rossellini journey from mm. previously. And I, I, I'm not sure I completely agree, but it is sort of an interesting point getting to what you were talking about about the very end of the film because, of course, and I'm going to completely spoil Journey to Italy for anyone who hasn't seen it, so here you go. Um, at the end of that movie, you know, they sort of miraculously, the, the central couple that are falling apart sort of miraculously gets back together right it's almost like it's almost like fantastical and i think that's apparently because rossellini that wasn't the intention and then all of a sudden he he got this idea that it was gonna you know it was nice or whatever and i I think it was had to do with his own troubled marriages but i think in this film antonioni kind of explicitly kind of makes the point that that's not what's going to happen here that they're not necessarily going to break up. I don't think that the film is conclusive at all about whether or not this is actually the end of their love or not there. She kind of like seems to, uh, I don't want to say give in. 
she kind of seems to like fall into him a little bit as the camera is pulling away. And so I think you could make the argument if you wanted to, just based on that, that maybe he kind of won her over at least for that minute. But I think even if the potential disruption of their marriage or, or, or ending of their marriage might have stirred him into passion for that minute. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that that's going to be, that we know for sure that that's going to be kind of a transformative trend. So I think that this couple has a lot uh, that they're up against, regardless of kind of whether or not this is the final blow. Um, Totally. But I I think that the film does an incredible job of saying like, you know, that's not, that's not the point here. We're not going to have a miraculous one night is not necessarily going to change your life. And, I'll probably come back to this because I've been talking for a while, but I think that there's an interesting parallel to La Ventura here in terms of how the alienation in the trilogy is being set up and and dealt with. I would love to get into it at some point. Yeah, I think when we do the third episode, it'd be a good time to to talk about sort of like summary connectedness between the three films. Um, But I agree with you that there's nothing definitive about that ending, of course. What I think is really truthful about it, no matter how you interpret or rather forecast their future is that they're both on the same page. They both want the same thing in a certain way that they both want comfort and they're, they're both sort of like finding some access point to comfort after the betrayal, after, after all of the, the, the feelings of aimlessness in their lives. Like there, there is this attempt that I think we can all relate to um, for many of these characters, whether through distraction, obsession, um, even just frivolousness, that you're looking for comfort, um, you're looking for something to feel like you, you can be grounded. Um, in terms of their relationship, in terms of maybe, because you mentioned like director's intent, uh, I'm going to read this quote by Antonioni that that may or may not colors the way someone sees both this ending and this this film in general. He says, in the final analysis, we have to preserve our feelings with great care because the feelings of a man and a woman the, the feelings a man and a woman are able to share are the things we must cling to in order to save ourselves in today's world. This makes it sound like he is mostly interested in a love story here, not in not a story about alienation. What do you think? Yeah, well, it seems to me that the, the this relationship between this husband and wife is, is really fundamental. But, you know, I, I was kind of struck when you, you know, kind of did the intro, Jordan. What you're talking about there is is kind of an event that occurs about an hour into the movie. There's like a whole lot of stuff that happens before that yeah. we get to the party. But, you know, in my own mental recollection, as I was kind of ready to re re-examine this film uh the party is what sort of stands out in terms of long-term memory you know what happens there and kind of the denouement after uh after all the festivities have died down but there is quite a bit of build-up before we get to that uh, dramatic entrance to the party and and one really key piece which can almost be overlooked because it happens so quickly and early on is that visit with Tommaso and then the fact that he dies I mean he's dead he and he's a yeah. very important friend of this couple he's he seems to be Giovanni's like agent kind of his literary uh, benefactor and enabler he's the guy who does all the you know the the dirty work of business dealing so that Giovanni can do his artistically brilliant creative thing mm-hmm. um and 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 there's and there's uh Lydia who's a a very you know close friend of Tommaso and, and she kind of acknowledges that you know at at some length later on in the film where she talks about 
you know, how important he was to her and what a great companion he was and how easily he could have seduced her. And yet he was really there as a very genuine male friend and, and, uh, and, and he's dead, he's gone and, and, you know, uh, life goes on and it's, and, you know, it's just kind of sort of a, a offhand, um, recognition that even the brutal finality of death, uh, doesn't really interrupt the flow of events for this particular couple. Uh, you know, Giovanni now, he has a new job opportunity. Uh, he could, quote-unquote, sell out, you know, and work for the corporate boss and become part of the economic miracle in Italy and, you know, give up some of his uh, artistic uh, street credibility and his independence uh, in exchange for wealth, which gives a different type of independence. Uh, and he's contemplating that he's thinking about uh, turning down the offer so that he can kind of keep doing his thing and yet there's his wife saying yeah go for it you know this is what you really wanted uh, you'll be better off for it and and maybe that's even uh you know her sort of nudging him into a situation where you know if she does pursue divorce there's a little bit more of a financial money stream uh, waiting for her rather than just the royalties from whatever he publishes next and maybe she recognizes his uh, writer's block his artistic Doesn't crisis she have more kind, money well, she does but yeah. you know I, I don't know i mean there's there's just all those different angles to consider there so but you know what you have is a very fundamental crisis in the life of this couple and yet it's it's almost kind of cast aside uh, in the midst of all the flirtations. I mean, it seems like Lydia understands uh, that's the reason she has to leave the, the hospital room is that she yes. knows T Tommaso is not going to be with us much longer and she can't handle it. Giovanni is almost kind of doing the denial, you know, I, when you get better, when you get out of here, you know, we'll go back to the old times, how it used to be. And, and then, of course, <laughs> on his way out, uh, this, uh, you know, I, I, she's almost like the demon-possessed woman. It's kind of an interesting little interlude there. The, uh, you know, nymphomaniac, whatever you want to call her. Uh, she kind of grabs him, pulls him in. Uh, there's a, you know, quasi-sexual encounter that doesn't quite go as far as maybe it might be if Antonioni had filmed this six or seven years later. Uh, but, you know, that's, a, that's just another really bizarre episode when you really think about it i mean come on giovanni really <laughs> you're gonna go there uh yeah. with yeah but but you know she's a young nubile attractive woman she's available and uh we don't she's really kind of creepy though well she's very creepy <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah she is she, she's quite quite deranged uh and yet he's still ready to you know you know seize the moment so yeah what do others people what do others have to say about that particular scene Oh, I was going to ask what you guys thought about uh, delaying the revelation of uh, John, uh, Lydia and uh, Tommaso's past to the very end, because it seems so key to the whole film to me that he was this, like, almost could have been suitor for her, and that so much of her uh, emotional journey in the film kind of depends on uh, her being, like, kind of cast into unknowing and kind of questioning her life as a result of realizing he's going to die. But we don't find out about all that till the very end of the film. I feel like maybe foregrounding that earlier might've given more uh, context to what she's going through. I do like the way that is staged actually. 
um, Scott. It is perplexing when she leaves the hospital room and we don't really know about her connection to Tommaso. We sort of feel like he's her husband's friend at that point, you know, or even just her husband's business associate and they're making a polite call. And then there's evidence that, oh, they've spent social time together, but that doesn't really feel that revealing either. So I agree with you that it feels like we don't have enough information to understand why she leaves the room. But upon rewatch, you know, I think I really notice lines like Tommaso saying in a very defeatist tone, like that he felt like he watched everything from the sidelines, you know, that he should have been more involved in his own life. Um, and so this is something I think that echoes part of Lydia's internal monologue. And so that that's what catapults her long walk, her lonely walk through the city. And, um, and even I would say motivates her distance at the party, though she says that this is how she has fun at one point when her husband says, you know, why are you always like this? This, And she says, this is how I enjoy myself, meaning spending time by herself is probably something innate to her character. Um, it's very clear when she takes time out of, you know, even her meanderings to check on Tommaso at the hospital at that point and finds out that he's died. Um, these, I think the way that these things land on her and we see this engineering her behavior and we find out finally that not only was he a dear friend and not only did he represent certain you know thematic richness for for her own problems with her own life that i'm not sure how much of a of a suitor he represented but he represented the opportunity to escape the problems of her marriage which is very much what this film is about so finding out late in the game um i i just thought that fulfilled or paid off very a lot of what we'd seen up to that point what about you Arik? what do you think yeah i i think i i agree that i don't need it early on i don't think that um i don't think the film cares that much why their marriage is falling apart necessarily um in, in terms of emotionally yes but not in terms of specific details so i think that the the relevant piece here is that they are alienated from each other that they are not connecting and you can tell that very quickly and um and i think that the fact that they're kind of in the and you might say oh well they're in this hospital room and and it's you know this guy is obviously not going to make it and and he obviously somebody they know and somebody they feel close to i mean i think you can even tell in that scene you know as uh tomaso is holding her hand and kind of the way that they're talking that that this is a special friend, but I, I don't think that the film cares that much as to why, like we don't find out a ton about the history of this couple really at any point. I mean, you know, we know that we know little details, you know, she has family money, but he apparently also has money and makes money at his job. We know that, you know, she was at one point, I maybe pursued by both. Although it, I agree with Jordan. It was more the way I remember her talking about it is more that, you know, he, he had an interest in her that, and it could have been an affair if he would have pressed the point because she just would have wanted out of boredom, she would have done it, but that he maintained the, the their friendship, even though he was potentially attracted to her. Um, uh, I, I guess he does talk, actually, I guess he does talk about how they both were such different men when she met them and that she, but she was only interested in, in Giovanni. But at any rate, I, I, I don't think the film cares that much about their details of their lives or, or, or any of that, except as it pertains to sort of the moment they're in. And I think it, it really is just examining 
sort of their their detachment for each other in these long, you know, Antonioni languid moments, and then the search for comfort that Jordan mentioned, uh, leading uh, Giovanni to Monica Vitti, who I, I think is pretty extraordinary in this film in her role, and um, also Lydia being drawn out by that kind of creepy stalker guy who throws her <laughs> in, in his car and drives in the rain. <laughs> like, and I guess, I guess, I guess he's not really, I mean, they seem to have a long conversation, but for me, it's just like, were you creeped out by him? Eric? Well, oh yeah, he's definitely prowling. I mean, he's on the hunt. You can tell that almost from the, the get go and yeah. especially on the rewatch, you know, <laughs> all the cues are right there. It's like, yeah, he's just a drifter coming into the party looking for a score and he eyeballs her and, and the hunt is on, you know? Exactly. And he just like, the, cause she's like, where are you taking me? And he just throws her in his car in the rain and drives off. And, you know, I mean, I, I guess she appreciates the attention at that point, but when the moment comes to, when he tries to kiss her, she's like, no, I can't do this. Oh, but the look she gives him at that point is amazingly sensual. I mean, it's, it's, it's better than a kiss. Yeah. 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 No, she clearly like, it, it's, it's very well done for sure. But, but I just, you know, it, it's, it's funny because, you know, he, her husband, of course, does not resist, shall we say. In fact, more than that, is not the is the pursuer, not the pursued, right? Like, you know, Monica Vitti seems to be quite into him, but he is definitely the one making that happen. And maybe that's a, you know, just a 1961 gender role statement by Antonioni, but it's, it is sort of an interesting um, parallel. But yeah, I, I don't think that we need to find that out at the beginning. And, and I, in fact, I, I, I don't even think finding out at the end was that important to me either, which is maybe awful. But like, you know, I think the more important thing is her. I mean, I think she's telling him that as a way to tell him, I don't love you anymore. Like I, I loved you then so much that this other man didn't interest me. You know, I wish I still felt like that. And what I've realized, you know, at the moment in the um, nightclub, when I wouldn't tell you what I was thinking is that I don't feel that way anymore. And once love, and I, you know, I, I don't know if any of you have been with anyone like this, but there are definitely people I've I dated in my in my past mm-hmm. where it's like mm-hmm. once they were out, they were just out. That was it. They were done. You know. And so we don't know if that's if that's her, but that's the vibe she's giving at this point. Yeah, and this whole topic of marriage. Let's just talk about that. I mean, the, the one thing that stands out to me is that this is a childless couple. Uh, they've been together for some years. I'm not sure if there's ever a, a number that's announced, but it seems like you know, ten, twelve, maybe even longer. Uh, but you know, there and and this is this is kind of a different thing for a, an Italian couple, right? I mean, if you think about just the traditional Italian way, which is you know, you get married, you start having children, and maybe you have a sizable family. But this is a modern couple. This is a couple that's decided to devote themselves uh, at a minimum to the husband's career. It's not exactly sure uh, or explicit what Lydia's career or pastime has been, but it seems pretty, you know, definite that she's been relegated to some kind of a subordinate role, you know, the author's wife, and uh, that we see him being celebrated at this kind of book signing publishing event, uh, the, the kind of thing that I'm accustomed to uh, uh, participating in whenever I publish a new episode of my podcast, by the way, but, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, but, you know, and so, so she's there almost as an accessory, you know, and, and she's kind of hearing her husband being gossiped about, even even a little bit ridiculed by some of the uh, hangers-on people who are there for the free cocktails and hors d'oeuvres and all of that, and uh, and he himself seems to be kind of 
exhausted by the whole routine of having to play the、uh, you know the the intellectual and and the glad hander and all of that. So they're both really kind of at the end of their ropes. And and again, it's just kind of one of these、um, reflections on why did this couple get together? What was the basis of their relationship?、Uh, obviously, things change over the course of years. And again, that's that's anything that any couple that's going to try to work this out over the long run is going to have to deal with whatever brought you together. And that might be if you were married in your early twenties, in your thirties, your forties, or whatever. There's going to come a time, you know, a decade or plus into it, that you're going to have to reassess and say, okay, why are we still doing this? And I think Antonioni is is、um, Presenting this to his contemporary audience, and and even to us, you know, you know, some sixty years later now, that、uh, you know th- these these are eternal questions that that long term relationships have to work themselves through, and、uh, whatever it was that drew them together, and they're and they're an attractive couple. I mean, come on, Jean Moreau,、uh, Marcello Mastroianni,、uh, that that's a pretty dynamic combination. And I think they were they were well cast by Antonioni for this very purpose. And yet, beyond the looks, beyond the、uh, you know the the surface appeal, there's got to be something a little bit deeper than that going on to make it work out. And and I think that's that's the fundamental crisis of this whole film. You know, he's got his own career issues going on as far as will he continue to write? Will he continue to present himself as this、uh, you know avant garde、uh, writer who's You know, even even at that time in 1961, he's talking about is this kind of an antiquated, outdated、uh, mode? Is this a media form that is no longer relevant in in the modern age? <laughs> well, here we are, you know,、uh, quite a few decades later, and、uh, writing, publishing、uh, the the written word or even the spoken word. Uh, is that really a, a, an effective way to get the message across?、Uh, certainly, and, and is it an effective way to, to you know, carve out a living、uh, versus the power of industry and, and making things happen in more tangible ways, hiring people, producing products, you know, moving money around?、Uh, yeah, these are these are all questions that are pretty relevant to the Italy of 1961 and and really relevant to our society nowadays. But at the, at the at the heart of it all is are these relationships, and and how do you how do you work it out when there are temptations and and reasonable excuses to step out on every side? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up、um, there being childless、uh, because it gets to something that really goes through the alienation trilogy, and I think is more prominent here, which is、uh, the way Antonioni's protagonists still. Posit themselves and probably to some degree feel more like children than adults. They, you know, they're less so here, but certainly in Love and Tour and Lickless, they're defined by their parentage and not by anything kind of they're building on their own and passing on. And the fact that、uh, Giovanni sort of likens himself closer to Monica Vitti, who is the daughter of you know the man who should be his contemporary, who's offering him a job, offering him a prominent position. In the industry, but he still feels like, you know, that's an old man's game. I think to some degree, I think he wants his independence because it makes him feel maybe younger and feel closer to Monica Vitti's character, and just the way that, like I said, kind of childishness pervades through the trilogy and these people trying to extend their youth beyond、uh, its natural endpoint. And it's one thing for. To be the topic of love and tour or Leia Cliss, where the characters are in their twenties, but the fact that 
uh, Mastriani and Jamara's characters here are still going through that in their late thirties is I think much more uh, tragic and kind of points to where they're at in their relationships of feeling like they're at the end of something, but don't know how to begin something new. Yeah. The, is that all there is syndrome that um, seems to echo more strongly when you don't have the next generation to think about? Yeah. I think that ties into what David was saying too, of in terms of uh, Giovanni trying to figure out if, you know, literature is right, if what his next step is, I think he's trying to figure out something to leave behind. It doesn't seem like at this stage in life, and it, certainly with their relationship on the fringes and kind of in danger that they're probably going to have children at all. So he has to figure out something else he can pass on. Yeah, good point. On the topic of childlessness, I'd like to interject this at this point. Um, when I first saw this film in 2005, it was because I was writing a lot of art criticism at the time. And a filmmaker friend of mine named Nathaniel Dorsky had just written a book on cinema called Devotional Cinema. And I wrote a review of it, and he talked about Lenote. So my introduction to the film included this uh, observation here. This is Dorsky writing in his book. Then at one point, and he's talking about Lydia and her walk through the city, she comes upon a half-demolished building and enters the yard. A small child is heard crying, and Lydia walks over, attempts to comfort her, then turns and walks away. We cut to a shot that looks down at a broken clock on the ground as Lydia's arm enters the frame. This is followed by a shot of her hand, fingering some decayed, rusty metal. This meaning-laden succession of cinematic events, perhaps symbolic of her failing and childless marriage, involves a subtle shift in syntax and removes us from the immediacy of what we've been experiencing. There definitely is meaning— but so much less so than in the existential directness and openness of the cinema that surrounds this moment. So I read that before I watched the film and I tend to really agree that the, the sort of heavy handedness of the broken clock and the uh, abandoned child in that dilapidated courtyard. And then the wall that's crumbling um, do not add to this film in in the way that the more abstract handling of the environment does. Um, and I think he might abandon that completely. I don't see anything like that in La Clisse. Uh, but I bring this up not only because Scott was talking about the, the childless status of their marriage, that clearly this um, abandoned child comments on, but I wanted to get your impressions of the handling of this kind of overt symbolism, because in a couple of the supplements, uh, uh, experts are are talking about how this is possibly, you know, the high high moment of this film in direct opposition to Dorsky and I guess my opinion. So anyone want to say anything about that? I think these are shots that Antonioni filmed and he liked them and decided to include, but I don't think he made it like the main thematic element. He didn't seem to, you know, dwell on this kind of approach or exercise if you will this is not a film that's loaded with those types of kind of visual motifs but you know i it's it's fine for what it is i i think the the real core of this film is found elsewhere so yeah i i i saw those same you know uh moments in the supplemental features and thought well you know they they certainly draw your attention to that it's it's a bit of you know, expressive experimental filmmaking, even if you will, because you're right. In, in terms of narrative, it's it, you could have snipped those moments entirely out of the film and and not really had a 
fundamentally different experience uh, from watching, you know, the rest of it. So yeah, I guess that's my take on it. Yeah. I was surprised to hear that in this, when I was watching the supplements as well, I was surprised to hear that, that someone that they felt like that was the, the I forget who it was who felt like that was the high point of the film, but yeah, that, I mean, I, I, I guess I can kind of see the, it's, it's a very obvious metaphor at that point, right? Pulling off the crumbling and, and if, part of the issue is that they didn't have kids and that she doesn't feel connected to children. Then that's also pretty on the nose, but I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that for me, that's the high point of the film. I don't think it's useless. I think it's sort of, they're pretty images and they're, and they are definitely some symbolism, but especially with the kid, I was like, I don't really know what Antonioni's trying to say here. Cause she just kind of leaves. I mean, I guess that was the interesting thing is that she doesn't, you know, you would assume that she would kind of like, find the parent of this child. I mean, she literally leaves a crying child in the, what looks like a bombed out building. <laughs> it, yeah. And she's like, see ya. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> like, which is kind of shocking in its own way. Yes. I'll have my semi maternal moment and then move on. Not that I've satisfied. Exactly. Like with no actual, you know, <laughs> I've done, I've accomplished nothing here. So it's a little weird. There are other things she does on her walk that also could be read as symbolic, but they are less heavy-handed. I mean, she she breaks up a fist fight. Uh, you could read something into that if you want, but it doesn't feel like it, it it's on the nose. She she becomes fascinated with these rockets that you know some, somehow could represent ascension or escape, but those feel a lot more organic. Um, so to to my mind, that's a that's a little bit more successful, just because it illustrates her search rather than like having a conclusion that she you know ready made conclusion that she stumbles upon for the sake of the uh, narrative. But the handling of the environment, I mean, I think it's something people talk a lot about with Antonioni that he's like a a photographer uh, director that his his images are so sensuously and carefully handled and modeled um, that it really does add quite a bit to this sense of the figure in space. You know, there's a lot of use of these, these vacuous negative spaces, um, compartmentalized spaces, reflective surfaces. And I think one thing that struck me uh, this time, even from the very beginning, the film opens with a kind of establishing shot at the street level. And then we descend at length on this, the side, the face of the skyscraper reflecting the city beyond it. And it was for the first time I thought, this is like the city being forced to confront itself, um, or at least there's an opportunity here for society to confront itself. Because I think some of these issues of, you know, angst and existential dread and aimlessness, you know, while contained within the personalities of our main characters, certainly do speak to larger societal issues, as, as I think um, I think David had, had brought up earlier. So thinking about that then in terms of the characters that the constant use of, of reflections off of, of glass in this film, I think one of the um, special features had a really beautiful observation that it was like people are becoming their own ghosts or something that effect. Very poetic. Um, I really love that. I would say my take on it would be more along the lines of the, the, the glass offers a constant opportunity for people to examine themselves that they are constantly dismissing. Um, is the way that I read that. Did, does anyone have any thoughts about the use of architecture, the use of reflective surfaces, and just the way that these characters are framed in space? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky thing to kind of tease out the extent to which this sort of thing is by design or sort of Antonioni uh, 
reacting to something instinctive that you couldn't quite define. I tend to, with most art, think towards the latter, that these things are better thought out in retrospect than in process. That, uh, you know, obviously Italy was changing very rapidly, and the architecture, if nothing else, provides a nice complement at the same time as a contrast to what the characters are going through, that they're kind of constantly shoved out of their environments. You know, they drive by these construction zones that kind of cause them to divert from their route. And then the fact that uh, Lydia sort of finds a bit of comfort uh, and a bit of satisfaction in sort of the outskirts of Milan, where she witnesses the street fights and the rockets going off and stuff. These people kind of outside of modernity. I, I love the comment uh, at the hospital with uh, Tommaso where, you know, he's like, there'll be night- nightclubs eventually. And then the nurse comes in, here's the champagne. Um, yeah, champagne with morphine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, A nice life if you can get it. it. Yeah, right. Uh, it's all sort Or hospice care, if you want to consider it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's all sort of bearing down at the characters at all times. Um, I, I don't know that he was necessarily thinking so far as to like, well, the reflections are their ghosts and it's a reflection of their souls, but it's definitely a counterpart to sort of the inorganicness of their relationship and the decay they're experiencing contrasted with the rejuvenation of Italy. Yeah. I think that Antonioni, you know, for sure, we know that from these films that, that they are trying to talk about and exist in the post-war economic boom milieu that, that life had become alienated in these various ways. And, and part of that is sort of the changing architecture. I think the supplements also do a good job of talking about that, that, that the film itself shows a lot of, um, shots of both sort of traditional the the traditional human city i think is how it gets put in the supplement of milan and this sort of new economic miracle city that milan was the center of at that time and so you get all this like super modernist almost brutalist in some senses in some cases architecture and then this sort of very traditional you know italian community architecture that's ancient and all this kind of stuff and that the jean moreau's character kind of wanders through both and, and they both exist in both and i think even tommaso comments on being in this ridiculous, you know, fancy new hospital and stuff. I don't think that the, some of the secondary as Scott, I don't think that Antonioni was necessarily thinking about some of this stuff. And I think a lot of this stuff comes when someone reads into it after the fact and you go, Oh, that's smart. Yeah. I definitely put that in there. Yeah, no, for sure. But I, so I you know, well, yeah. And, and Lydia's whole wandering is she seems to be looking for places that she and Giovanni used to hang right. out. And again, it's a, an effort to rekindle maybe a bit of uh, fond memory, a little bit of nostalgia uh, back back when we were young and everything was fresh and new. Can we recapture that? And what she finds is that, you know, as as charming perhaps as the old city may be, it's not like a, how it used to be. Yeah, you know, the, the railroad tracks are all kind of, you know, weeded up and grown over. Uh, youthful thug gangs are <laughs> running the street. Uh, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, no, you, you can't go back. I mean, even even your best effort to try to reconnect. And, and, you know, when she says, hey, meet me down at this little 
little uh, bistro or whatever. He knows exactly where she right. is. Uh, he he remembers the space just as much as she does, but it doesn't really have any kind of uh, a warming effect. It's just a it's just a place where she wandered off uh, to kind of regroup herself to to kind of process the imminent passing of her friend and to see if there's some kind of reboot that can happen <laughs> with her marriage by meeting her husband back uh you know back where they maybe made some happy memories uh that's not enough and so yeah because yeah really otherwise that whole wandering scene could seem a little bit indulgent uh but there is a purpose to that uh do we want to talk about the nightclub scene uh that's another yeah. interesting oddity uh, that kind of fits in and uh yeah yeah i just uh, want to say on that note that i think and, and this ties in perfectly i think with where we're going with this but that i think that you know most of the film from her perspective or from a reading of her is that she's she's recognizing that this is that there's a miss something missing here and she's struggling to try to awaken something within him to validate something that she's trying to see if is still in her she's she's probing to see like okay i'm not sure how i'm feeling how is he feeling do we have this is this here can i jumpstart this in some way and she's giving him a lot of opportunities and a lot of clues that he's just completely missing you know she invites him into the into yeah. the bathroom with her to the bathtub when she's taking a bath and he shows no interest in jean moreau which is yeah. you know c- criminal yeah um <laughs> hand me yeah. the sponge here's and he's like here's a sponge, a sponge. <laughs> see ya you know and it's just like he, he could not care less and she says let's go to this party and then she says no let's you and me go to this nightclub and maybe there you know you will pay some attention to me we we can have a nice time and when i get the, to the nightclub there's this you know very cool uh um uh performance going on that we someone can summarize but that he's completely pay, he's paying attention to that completely although not all that intentedly and he's completely ignoring her and they're not having any conversation and it doesn't look like they're even really there together it looks like they're both in the same room but not together yeah yeah i think that's really well observed and said arik about her searching for some kind of confirmation in him to find out how she's feeling i think there is that inclination in her and his affable agreeable nature like we want to go out okay sure we won't stay and we'll go out and once they're out well let's go to the party anyway okay it's so hostile you know yeah, he, he, he really managed is. to make his affability like completely hostile because it's Weaponized. so indifferent yeah yeah um i do think the nightclub scene is um problematic in at least uh, one major <laughs> way <laughs> sure uh and i i don't know uh, th- this problem becomes have you seen Laclise yet? We'll, we'll talk about this one. Laclise. No, I haven't. Uh, okay. Yeah, um, it's much more pointed there, but I think it. I think you're on the right track for sure. Yes. Yeah, so the seeds of that are, are here of some kind of problematic thinking on Antonini's part of objectifying blackness. Um, and definitely I mean, seems it, like it's here. It's here. You'll you'll learn. It it becomes so much more frightening. Okay. Um, in in Laclise, <laughs> um, here here you can kind of. Um, you can kind of dismiss it in a way as like, oh, well, at the time, was it realistic to see, you know, black audience members as a part of this nightclub scene? Uh, no? Okay. Well, then I guess there's there's sort of something factual to reckon with here. Um, but the man is dressed almost like a, a native in just his loincloth. Um, I find the seductress elements of her performance so i guess we should say i mean i think this should be obvious to the audience but like so it's it's a it's it's a sort of a hip little nightclub not you know filled with people but there's an audience uh, seems to be exclusively white people and the two performers as well as most of the musicians um are black artists and she's doing something um 
extremely uh, seductive with a, at a certain point, a glass, which unfortunately um, gets placed on her forehead and then filled with uh, liquor. Um, and then she does all these acrobatics that are very impressive. And it's, it's a, it's a beautiful routine. The context um, implies things that, that, uh, that, that um, really detract from this film uh, as a whole. Uh, I, I, I sort of, I struggle with this scene. Well, yeah, it's, it's a striptease. It's uh, exploitive. Um, it's, yeah, it, it, I don't know. It, it, the, the, what words come to mind? Yeah, it, it's just, it's kind of a, kind of a gawking, awkward um, exploitation of, of blackness, uh, which was probably seen as an exotic uh, flavor for the contemporary audience, even to the viewers of the film. I don't know that the original sort of intended audience would have had a lot of problems with this that we do these days. Um, it was, it's kind of a, a touch of exotica, you know, the, the music is kind of swanky and sexy and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, he certainly is, is complimentary. You know, he says to his wife, yeah, she's not all that bad, you know, <laughs> like, Whoa, sexy mama here, you know? Uh, and, and, and that's his excuse to just kind of continue ogling her as she kind of does all of her gyrations and, uh, kind of puts body parts up in prominence that, uh, even the you know beautiful white actresses probably would never have been asked to do so. Yeah, it's it, it, there's a tawdriness and a tackiness to this situation um, that I think you know is actually pretty uh, suitable to the narrative purposes, which is to indicate Giovanni's distraction and and lack of attention to his wife, and to justify uh, Lydia's boredom and even a sort of a slight astonishment of, of just how dense her husband really is and how uh, oblivious he is to even considering her needs and her perspective in this kind of you know low-key marital crisis that they're working themselves through yeah i mean part of the reason it's problematic or tough to reconcile, I guess, is because the dance is incredibly impressive too. It must be said. Oh my god! That, like yeah. she yeah. drinks yeah. the wine. It, That's incredible. Yeah, it is genuinely mesmerizing. Um, but the way in which it's kind of framed against the couple does lend it to a sense of yeah, exoticism and otherness and all the stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it it is very much uh, not. <laughs> it is very cringy. It's it's you know the, I think the the real uh, giveaway. I mean it's all bad, but the the giveaway, as Jordan said, is the the way that the male the male performer is being treated, who is basically yeah, dressed in a loincloth, I think, and uh, and just the entire thing feels extremely performative. And it is. I mean it's literally a performance, but in a in a just a creepy, racially charged, gross. Yeah, it's it's not good. Now, the stuff going on between the couple during this scene, though, um, is also worth talking about. And I think we've already started to to say some things about it. But, you know, Marcello's purience is a little bit of a show and he uses it to distract from talking about other things. And so when he when he talks about how, you know, the the dancer is great, he's doing it to not discuss the things that she's trying to bring up, which is, you know, his dismissiveness of her. So he enlists the dismissiveness to not engage with that topic. Um, but there's also this, this really great way in which um, her submissiveness is articulated 
and 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 how she feels um you know bound and contained by some agreement that they seem to have come to that he's the one who has thoughts you know he's the literary presence he's the one who generates thoughts she's the receptacle for thoughts so that the idea that she would have thoughts of her own um worth worth both of them discussing is is not really even conceivable so she has a thought she says you know oh there it was but no we won't talk about it now um it's very heartbreaking um but it, it has a great payoff later i think someone already talked about that the thought she had was that she doesn't love him anymore and watching this scene again knowing that that's the thought she's having if, she, if she's being honest with us um is even is even further uh, heartbreak well, and her, her, your point about their roles is reinforced when she says that, you know, Tommaso, when, when she was being pursued by both men, Tommaso wanted to talk with her, whereas Giovanni just wanted to talk at her. And that, you know, mm. at that time in her life, that was attractive to her. That she was like, oh, this is a guy with all these thoughts, all these opinions, so much to say. I don't have to do any work. I can just be here and let him, you know, be brilliant around me or whatever. And that's what I want at that time in her life, you know, 12 years earlier or whatever it is. But now she's like, hmm, I don't really want to just – first of all, you don't even have any thoughts anymore. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a commentary on, on personal growth and maturity. I mean she was probably impressed by Giovanni's, you know quote-unquote brilliance and and the way that he can sort of just take charge whereas Tommaso was probably more of a mundane character you know not not the kind of the alpha male type uh and as she grows as she kind of comes into her own personhood now all of a sudden this man who can be attentive and respectful and take her seriously uh there's a lot more attractiveness to that because she's kind of come into her own she doesn't you know she's not uh or she's trans, maybe transcended the traditional uh, female uh, submissive sidekick support role, which is you're just there to be, again, the accessory to to your successful husband. Uh, there is more to life than that, even though she might have been raised to think of herself as kind of occupying a certain role. I mean, I I know of young women within my own extended family who were raised to be, you know, good housewives and they get to a certain point in their late twenties. It's like, really, is that it? And then, you know, things get more complicated because they don't really want to sit in this subservient, uh, posture for the remainder of their married lives or their lives in general. So uh, this, this to me seems like another sort of indication of kind of the, almost the expansion of consciousness within, you know, Italian society with the, some of the traditional expectations kind of loosened due to economics and just kind of the, the currents of modern life. Uh, women in particular are, are allowed to rethink their, their destinies and, and uh, their options. Uh, so there is, you know, maybe we won't consider Lenote a, a feminist film, but there are certainly some threads there that could be extrapolated into, you know, the further development of feminist uh, thought uh, later on in the decade and in the decade since. It's it's a fascinating pairing with the Monica Vitti character, who, by the way, is like two years younger than Jean Moreau. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Her her, her playing a twenty two year old, I guess thirty. Black wig. Yeah, the black wig was supposed to be the 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 cover or something there. <laughs> <laughs> um, random aside, just re- very briefly, is Jean, Jean, as far as I can tell from lip reading, Jean Moreau is speaking Italian. 
Is, but is she being dubbed? Like, is she doing? She is own? dubbed. It's a different voice actress, right? But she's but, still speaking Italian, which is pretty impressive, I have to say. I mean, I don't know what yeah. her accent sounded like, but she's acting in a language that's not that isn't you know even a language as far as I know she spoke, which is pretty in, in, in interesting. But um, yeah, so it, it it definitely parallels interesting where because he's now looking for that twenty two year old again, you know, because he wants to, someone who just immediately finds him brilliant and is going to be impressed by him because he's read all these books and you know but and what what he finds instead is sort of a uh someone who would self-describe themselves as kind of a vapid party girl right and and that's an interesting moment and i mean i for me the the it's not necessarily the high point of the film maybe it is but the perfect moment of the film for me is that moment where monica viti is uh, standing in the in the window and and she says, you two have, have worn me out. Oh, yeah. And then they sure. leave, and then she turns off the light, and she's still standing. Oh, my God. It, the music is playing. It is like <laughs> an absolutely perfect cinematic moment. It's so good. But It's also um, good comedy. Like, there are yeah. very beautiful lines of comedy here that are delivered very dryly. It's so good. But, yeah. And yeah, she so seems like such good. a child there. I mean, yeah. we, you, you just said, like, oh, the, the age difference here isn't totally believable at that moment i totally believe it they you know we've got the couple framed in the other doorway and they really feel like predators at this point that like oh maybe this is something in some form they have enacted before and they have just done this to this other person (laughs) yeah maybe i mean it's entirely possible i wasn't saying by the way i wasn't saying that the age difference isn't believable i was just saying that in reality there was no age difference i actually think the film does a, a pretty great job of 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 making you know Jean Moreau look a little more worn and making Monica Vitti look a little younger and and all those kind of things and the way that their mannerisms work although I I notice they both continually pull up the strap on their dress which I think is probably unintentional but if we want to give Antonioni the superpowers of having everything be intentional it would be a nice link between you know who she was and who she is and who this mm. younger girl is but uh, I I think that uh, yeah no it, they might absolutely this might be the dance that they do periodically we don't know we don't know much about them. And they do say they don't go out very much. They both, uh, the husband says that to Tommaso. She says it at a certain other point in the film, like this is the first time we've gone out in years. Oh, to her friend that she finds at the party or right. acquaintance rather. Yeah. Yeah. Her old, her old high school friend or whoever that is. Frenemy. <laughs> Definitely a frenemy. Yeah. There is a moment, uh, I'm not sure how important this is to the film, but I would like to at least mention it, that it is a turning point. This is, I believe, after Lydia has found out that Tommaso has died, right, which further submerges her. And then this downpour of rain happens. And it seems to have this supernatural, narcotic, ecstatic effect on most or seemingly a a relevant proportion of the party guests. I mean, some of these women seem to just be orgasmic on the patio as this rain (laughs) pours down on them. And Lydia is not immune. Um, You know, there's a there's a. There's a value placed on stoicism in this. These characters care about not being affected by the melodrama that they seem to cultivate around them. And yet this rain activates Lydia. She becomes more childlike. She be smiling genuinely. She's going to join the people that decide to jump inside the pool. And that's when the potentially creepy suitor Roberto, you know, ushers her away. But what do we make of this, of this amazing supernatural effect this downpour has on the party? I don't know, is that kind of his La Dolce Vita moment or something? I, it, it, kind of, it kind of feels like it. It's like, you know, the party has just kind of been launched into overdrive or kind of this hedonistic abandon. I mean, even the the woman who's kind of 
seducing the the statue of Pan in the middle of the the the, the dance uh, platform, the circle or whatever. Yes. That's another kind of iconic moment from the film, even though it's it's kind of a toss away. But it, I mean, you know, the camera does kind of linger on her as she's kind of uh, rubbing and seducing the statue, and yeah, it is it, it is very uh, sexually charged. Um, the 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 and, abandon, and the purely Dionysian right? moment of the entire film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody's probably had a bit or more to drink, and uh, now the the rain has come in. The music is still kicking in, and everybody's just kind of you know casting all the inhibitions aside. Uh, so yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe they were expecting the party to just kind of develop. It doesn't become a, a full blown orgy, but uh, it definitely could. Well, yeah, and and again, we're thinking 1961, and and what can you put on camera, and all of that. So you you can let the imagination wander a bit there. Uh, yeah, it's it's to me, it's it's just kind of kicking it to that next level. And and I, going back to the Valentina character, Monica Vitti, and all of that, I think this is again, this is where Giovanni is recognizing that even you know a pursuit of the younger generation and the perhaps more. Uh, uh, you know the the lack of restrictions on the libido and and his ability to impress uh younger women is going to backfire because the, the this at least this younger woman is already kind of jaded i mean she's lived a very privileged life and even i think her um accommodation of of his forwardness of his attempts to seduce her is more like well let's just kind of see what happens i mean she's still going to retain her own control and uh, that moment where she kind of succumbs to his his advances but then the light turns on in the hallway she's like yeah see how ridiculous this is she, she really seems to maintain the upper hand even when she is yielding to him it's a very interesting dynamic where this this kind of young party girl really seems to have a lot more worldly knowledge than this uh, supposedly sophisticated intellectual who's you know uh recognized as a, as a man of letters and perhaps an, uh, a, a thought influencer, to use some of today's language. Um, and yet he's still kind of sheltered, kind of cloistered, kind of naive to how today's Italy of 1961 is, is actually functioning. So uh, some very interesting psychological uh, and sexual dynamics at play in all of that. Such a good movie. One thing that we didn't uh, discuss about the finale that I think is maybe an important way to tie uh, many of the things that we have touched on together because we're about an hour in now, so we're probably nearing a point where we should wrap this conversation up as wonderful as it's been. There is a letter that Lydia reads to mm. her husband, Giovanni. Um, this is so, okay, so the so places in context, like this is after the whole night is over. They've they've gone to the furthest reaches of the grounds. I think it was described as the, the golf course of this person that Antonioni describes as middle class i i can't quite justify that uh this does not feel like a middle class surrounding at all but the couple is on their own now the night is over all of the flirtations and distractions and betrayals have settled and this is when she talks about how she doesn't love him anymore and she wants him to admit that he doesn't love her anymore also and as evidence of this she Clearly, she planned ahead because she has it on her. She reads this very lengthy, beautiful love letter that he had written to her early on in their relationship. 
And uh, the the line that really uh, stands out to me is that he says the only thing that could end that could threaten their eternal love would be the dull indifference of habit, which clearly they suffer from. On a societal level, it's also what leads to fascism or maintains fascism. So he pretends not to know who wrote the letter. I read it as pretending because I cannot buy that a writer could compose this letter and not remember doing it. So so that's up, to, up for discussion. You guys may not agree, but there is an inauthenticity to, to many of the hyperbolic declarations, in my view, made by several of the characters. You know, I'll never write again. I want to die. I want to run away with you. I'm not jealous of you. Even I don't love you anymore, and especially who wrote that letter. So they seem to furnish. There's a payload here that they that they are invested in in the drama again that they enjoy being stoic in the face of. So I don't buy that he doesn't know who wrote this letter, but I do buy that he forgot about it and that he can't. It's a, yet another thing that he can't face right now. That he's such a coward when it comes to you know facing these critical emotional issues. He refuses to confront it. And I also think this ties back to what Arik was saying, that as certain as she's trying to sound that she doesn't love him anymore and that he doesn't love her, she's, I think, mostly doing what Arik described as looking for evidence of such a thing. She's fishing more than she's declaring. What do you guys think? I had the same reaction when uh, he asked who wrote that letter. I mean, every time I've watched this movie, it's like that just cannot be gen- – I mean, I mean, I have written a lot of stuff over the course of my years. And yeah. uh, uh, an impassioned love letter, even if it's, you know, you know you're know, you trotting out a few cliches, even if you've committed plagiarism or, or copied, you know, some other source or whatever, you're going to know what you wrote to your wife – you know, 10, 15, whatever years ago. Um, so to me, it was, it, he was maybe doing a bit of fishing himself or maybe in some indirect way saying, am I the same person who wrote that? Uh, he's just kind of being a little bit gamey with, with his evasion of saying, yes, I wrote that and, and having to be accountable to the uh, eternal love that he vouched in those florid statements there. Uh, so in, a, in other words, you know, she's serving it to him and he's just kind of passively kicking it back without really declaring himself. So it's, a, again, another evidence of his kind of weaselly nature that, that he's he's just afraid to sort of take a stand and have that hard conversation, which again, going way back to the beginning brings his confession of the fact that he had this unpleasant encounter with that young woman that they both saw in the hospital, even more puzzling. Like, why did he even have to tell her that he could have just kept that all secret unless he was concerned that his wife was going to be notified because, you know, the hospital was going to register a complaint. I mean, you know, again, it's, it's all kind of ambiguous how that whole situation was resolved because they kind of cut away uh, to, to follow um, Lydia on her wanderings after he's been kind of busted laying on her atop her naked body on the bed. But in any case, he, he is willing to share some information that is a bit, you know, self-implicating. And yet here, he just doesn't seem to be ready to 
hash out the real guts of the issues that he and Lydia have to work through. In other words, he just wants to say, I love you, I love you, and make love to me here in the sand trap, and let me, you know, press my body on you, and shut up, and let me kiss you, and kiss me back. You know, that's like, yeah, he, he still doesn't quite get it, and yet he's trying through, I guess, just force of power to, you know, win her over once again. Yeah, I don't know what to make of his claiming. I was, I was like, "What? How do you?" This is a not a short piece either. <laughs> right, <laughs> Very right, right. intense, and I'm like, "But you know, maybe the only justification I'll say is that he he is sort of going through some sort of writing crisis, and it's hard to sort of match up his persona throughout the film with the book he is a, supposed to have written, and it al- almost has me questioning, you know, is he a great writer and stuff? So if we assume that he is a great writer, but that he's kind of in some sort of crisis of writing then maybe he has sort of disassociated with his own words in general so that's the one caveat i'll give there but yeah i i definitely agree that he's he's still even at this point missing the point which is probably not going to this is why i think that my odds would be that they will not um they might stay together but they will not recapture their their love um but but you know maybe i don't know i mean i like i said i think that, that this is sort of intended to be that kind of, um, you know, non-miraculous ending that, you know, this is the reality is that maybe that moment stirs something in you, but it it might ultimately be hollow. It's, uh, it's very interesting. He's also pretty tired too. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, uh, this moment kind of reveals, uh, how people feel about the film more generally, but I guess my reading of it is that he had generally forgotten and that it's just part of kind of the film's thin critique of marriage that he was so divorced from their early days that he cannot even remember feeling a certain way. Um, but I am definitely uh, open to you guys' more charitable readings. Or, or that he just spun so many words that they're all just kind of lost in the shuffle. He's just written or he and never written. written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it could be. I mean, he could be a complete hack for all we know. <laughs> <laughs> well, my final thoughts would be that I deduct a little bit of points for the nightclub scene, and I'd give this a 9.5 out of 10. I adore this film. Um, I adore everything else about this film, I'd say. Um, it was my first Antonioni. It, it remains my favorite. I find it very rewatchable on multiple levels. Its formal levels alone are uh, very exciting to this day. Um, and I, I would rewatch this film again tomorrow. Um, small things uh, small things stand out, but um, in summary, yeah, I high recommend for this. Anybody else have uh, additional thoughts to offer before we close up the conversation? Yeah, I agree that it's, I mean, I agree that you have to take away some points for the um, for the nightclub scene for sure. And I agree that I would watch it again. Quite, I don't know if I'd watch it again tomorrow. Probably. I, I really love it as well. I, I, I absolutely love it. Yeah. I, I'm pretty happy that Criterion was able to get this. I, as far as the Blu-ray itself is concerned, it's a little bit light on the supplements, but maybe there's just not a lot of material. They, they bring together a couple of con- contemporary scholars to, you know, talk about the architecture and those two old Italian guys kind of talking about kind of their recollections from back in the day. They seem to be have have been on board with this film from the get go. So, uh, you know, it, it's kind of nice to have a little extra perspective on the film. Um, 
but it's not going to bowl you over with all, all of the bonus goodies uh, compared to Leclise and, and La Ventura, which have a lot of really great material on them. This was kind of a late entry. Uh, you know, Criterion had the rights to La Ventura and Leclise uh, for, for many years, and then La Note kind of came out. In fact, I think that was – wasn't that like the last disc that they released before they started their short-lived dual-format series? Um, I believe that's correct. It's right before Zatoichi, so that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so it's kind of a kind of a you know little unique moment in the Criterion Collection, and definitely one that we were pining for for quite a few years because it seemed like such a glaring missing piece to have the you know the center the the second installment of the Alienation trilogy only available on some crappy out of print DVD. <laughs> so I'm really which glad. I owned and then got rid yeah, of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm very impressed. I think I gave it a five star on letterboxd. Um, you know, I certainly recognize and, 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 and endorse the, the deduction for the problematic nightclub scene, but you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty outstanding film. And I think one that carries its own weight, even if it may not be quite as, again, as celebrated, as the the first and third installments in this particular series of films that Antonioni uh, presented to us. Yeah, it's too bad it came out after Criterion stopped uh, recording commentary tracks for the most part. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Because the ones on Love and Tour and the Eclipse are so good. And uh, my reservations about the film aside, I think there's plenty to dig out. The smart critic or scholar or historian or whoever could get into through the course of its two-hour running time. I do really like Richard Brody's essay uh, that accompanies the film, um, as I love most Richard Brody stuff, uh, but I do wish we had a full like commentary track on it. Scott, you, uh, if I can like lift the curtain a little bit, when we planned out the this season of episodes, you said there was one that you did not like. Is this that film? Yeah, this is that film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, this is that film. I... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I was on mute. I don't know if I repeated myself there. Um, yeah, uh, I I liked it more on this view uh, than I had in the past, um, in part because my past viewings had been on kind of crappier transfers, and seeing the Criterion version was much more revealing of its inherent beauty and dynamic visuals. Um, but I still, for the reasons I kind of outlined at the start, I still think it's a little bit more limited than the other Antonioni films that I love so much. It did not get it did not get a heart from him on uh, on Letterboxd, <laughs> but it the did big division heart or no heart. Yeah, it did not get a heart, but it did have some. Uh, I, I thought I thought your writing about it was was very interesting. Oh, thanks. It got two hearts from me though, so I made up. For it. I mean, I also <laughs> gave it five stars, just like David. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can uh, listeners, you can follow me at Jordanesso on Instagram, and I will post in the show notes any articles any of us have written about La Note. Um, the only one that I conclude for myself is I, uh, the review I wrote of Devotional Cinema by Nathaniel Dorsky. Um, I was also interviewed about my art career on a, another podcast recently. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And uh, lastly, the mask debate is not complicated. Just uh, wear a mask, everybody. Next month, we will be covering the third installment of this trilogy, La Clisse. Scott, where can people follow you online? Uh, on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow, uh, at BattleshipPretension.com, and of course at CriterionCast, uh, less frequently, unfortunately, in the writing these days, but uh, happy to be doing these podcasts for sure. We're always happy to have you. David, where can people follow you? 
Uh, yeah, I write for Criterion Cast, so all of my podcasting stuff is published there. Uh, I'll have I'll be getting back into the Criterion Reflections groove later this week. We'll be talking about Francois Truffaut's Two English Girls. I've got a really excellent cast lined up of guests uh, for that particular conversation. Uh, Inside the Box is my uh, rel- relatively new show with Trevor Barrett. We've got an episode on the Apu Trilogy that's still in editing. Hopefully we'll be out pretty soon. And uh, now that my vacation's over, I'll be back into the podcast groove, talking about 1971 Criterion films soon. And uh, follow me on Facebook at Criterion Reflections, the group, where I talk about the films that uh, I discuss here in podcasts. Very cool. And Arik, uh, your assignment before you answer this question is to not channel Marcello Mastroianni in this film and tell us where we can follow you with some enthusiasm this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm taking a break from social media right now, so I, I won't really plug any of those because they're just like ghost towns, but I am absolutely watching a ton of movies and, and therefore writing a ton on my uh, Cinema Gadfly website. Um, so yeah, uh, that would be the main place that I'm doing anything sort of v- visibly online. And then I also have a podcast called Fun Fact, which uh, the in the episode that will be coming out uh, shortly, you can find out why in Ethiopia right now it's 2012. Awesome. Well done. And thank you, everyone, for joining in this conversation this morning. I really love this film, and I really love talking about it with you. And listeners, we'll see you next month. Just when things get worse, I said you were.